So uh, I'd like to read to you a little excerpt from the transcript of an NPR story I came across, oh, a few days ago. It's from, uh, it's talking about an incident from a few years ago, uh, not that long. Uh, the headline was, Search for Buried Treasure Linked to Illinois Man's Death at Yellowstone. Summer of 2017, 53-year-old Jeff Murphy was hiking in Yellowstone National Park when he disappeared, park investigators found his body on June 9th that year, where Murphy had fallen 500 feet from Turkey Pin Peak after accidentally stepping into a chute. But he wasn't on just any hike. He was looking for a treasure box of gold and jewels worth up to $2 million. Buried somewhere in the Rocky Mountains by an eccentric millionaire named Forrest Fenn. Finn, an art dealer and millionaire in his 80s, lives in Santa Fe, New Mexico. In his self-published memoir, Finn included a poem that supposedly leads to the treasure he hid in the mountains. The ornate Romanesque box is 10 by 10 inches and weighs about 40 pounds when loaded. Finn has only revealed that it is hidden in the Rocky Mountains, somewhere between Santa Fe and the Canadian border, at an elevation above 5,000 feet. It's not in a mine, a graveyard, or near a structure. Jeff Murphy is the fourth man to die while searching for that chest. There's danger. Danger in going astray in our search for treasure. Danger in going astray in our search for treasure. Now, that could be literal, physical, monetary treasure, something you can hold and run between your fingers, or it could be the treasure of, of answers, um, solution, meaning in life. There again, there's danger in going astray in our search for that form of treasure as well. And Jesus knows that. Jesus knows that very, very well because he knows the way our hearts are, are wired, of course, because he wired them. To, to long for that which is greater, higher, more than ourselves. He, he knows that. He knows that we long to connect with, I'll just say nebulously, the spiritual. And at the same time, he also knows how easy it is for us to go astray in that search like Jeff Murphy falling down the chute to his death. He knows all of that, and he would not have us to go astray, not have us to lose our way, even and especially in as our, these longings of our heart intersect with questions and um, searching regarding how will things end, not just, just my own life, but the whole kit and caboodle, everything. Where is this going? How is this going to end? We can go astray there too, and that can have consequences if we're not aware and careful. Well, Jesus speaks to this and very powerfully. If you have a Bible, I've asked you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 24. It's going to be what it is on the screen there now. Uh, Matthew 24 verses 1 through 28. Matthew 24 verses 1 through 28. Uh, this is the beginning of what for years uh, New Testament scholars have referred to as the Olivet Discourse because Jesus is speaking there on the Mount of Olives, hence it's referred to in that way. It comes right on the heels of uh, some pretty strong things that he has said there in the temple precincts, uh, and we've been talking about that over the last several weeks in this series in the Gospel of Matthew, and we especially saw that there in, in chapter 23 uh, in the last uh, week or so. 
Um, if you're trying, if you haven't gotten there yet, Matthew is the first book of the New Testament. It's Matthew, and then Mark, and then Luke, and then John. Those are the, the four first four books. That's the first gospel. And then that collection. It's a big text we're reading. Uh, there's a lot here. Matthew 24 verses 1 through 28. Hear now the word of God. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house, and let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be a great tribulation, such as not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Clear? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we laugh, but we ask that you would make it clear. We ask that you would make the puzzling uh, not just a matter of curiosity and fascination and study and introspection, but rather that you would make this time a time where we are increasingly becoming aware uh, that there is a strong one whose hand is very steady on the wheel, and uh, we really do have nothing to fear. He holds all things together. 
It's hard, we confess, though, here at the outset of the study, it's hard for us at times to just talk about and use language, even have categories for an end, end of all things, or a renewal of all things, because we live in a very steady stream. It just, every day seems like the day before, and the day before that, and the day before that, and we just assume it's just going to keep going as it's always been, but it hasn't always been that way. creator of all things is the redeemer and renewer of all things. We ask that you'd have us, give us, help us to have a humility to be a bit more teachable in these things this morning. We pray in your name. Amen. A spoiler, a spoiler, not the thing on the back of your car, a spoiler when it comes to popular media and movies, TV, books, such, is when someone reveals to you something that previously to you has been unknown and you just assume it had stayed that way until you were ready to discover it for yourself. That's a spoiler. Hence, sometimes you hear the term spoiler alert because, you know, that, that surprise, the thing that you didn't know that you wanted to discover on your own is about to be revealed. I'm going to give you some examples. Now, I'm hoping these are cases where it's actually not a spoiler for you because most of these are so old, okay? Some of, them you may even, some of you may even wonder, what is he talking about? So here's, here's one, classic examples of, of spoilers. Did you know, did, you, did it ever occur to you while you were watching the Mooney movie that the planet of the apes was Earth all along? See, that goes way back. Um... Or in the early 80s, oh my goodness, the sensation of the summer, I think it was of 1980, of who shot JR. Look it up, look it up, you don't know who I'm talking about. And if you somehow knew the answer to that question, you dare not reveal the answer to anybody who was wondering. That would be a spoiler and be just, just horrific. Or, or this one, this one. Did you know that Darth Vader is Luke's daddy? That's a big one. In fact, just a quick aside, that one was so big that uh, the actors involved with the scene on the day of shooting didn't know that was the line that they were going to be reading. It was clamped down to that degree because they really didn't want the word getting out. Mark Hamill, who plays Luke Skywalker, thought it was going to be Obi-Wan Kenobi was the one that killed his father. That's, I know, you're really wondering about all this, aren't you? But I mean, the, the, the reason being, the reason I'm telling you this is because even the folks that make these films recognize that people hate spoilers. They want to enjoy the sensation of the thing being revealed in time as it's intended to be because in every situation, a spoiler is a terrible, bad thing, except one. There is one example in which actually the spoiler is the most beautiful thing in the world. And that has to do with the meta-narrative in which we live right now. The story of stories. Because the author of that story has told us how it's going to end. And we're supposed to live in light of its ending or new beginning, if you will, however you want to you think about that. The author of that story has told us exactly how things are going to end, and we need to carefully consider what it is that he has 
to tell us in these things. Let me give you a quick recap where we are here as we're moving into Matthew 24. So in the last few chapters, so you go back to Matthew uh, 21, what we saw was Jesus coming into the city to the praise of the people. He then moves into the temple over the course of this week, moves into the temple, assesses it, judges it, cleanses it. As the days unfold, then he warns the people of the hypocrisy of the religious authorities. Then he warns the religious authorities about their own hypocrisy. He pronounces strong, terrifying woes upon them. And yet at the, quickly thereafter, weeps the saddest of laments over them at the same time, which then brings us to this text, Matthew 24. I'm going to read to you again verses 1 through 3 because it's picking up right where we left off last week. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age? Well, chapters 24 and 25, that's Jesus' answer to their questions. It's a long answer going to take us a little while to unpack it. We're just beginning to unpack that here this morning. Again, the author of the story has told us how it's going to end. We need to carefully consider what he has to say. And as we carefully consider what he has to say, what it presses us towards is the realization of at least these three things. And this is what's in your outline. The humility of our approach in considering these things, the humility of our approach, the reality of these events and the necessity of preparation, the humility of our approach, the reality of these events, and the necessity of preparation. So let's look at these three things in turn. First, the humility of our approach. Now, just saying right from the outset, there need to recognize there are different, different levels, differing levels of clarity when it comes to studying the Bible. Most everything is pretty clear. Certainly, the essentials no, no real argument there at all. You think in terms of the, the matters of the classic creeds that we profess or the solas of the Reformation, those types of issues, no need to, to argue about those matters. But then you get into some other matters, things like we're talking about here today. Well, Jesus' very words point us towards whatever your conclusions might be on these matters, be humble about it. Be humble about it. You see a hint of that just in verse 4. And Jesus answered them, see that no one leads you astray. Don't get lost in this. Don't be led away in this. Why? Well, then he unpacks that, verses 5 through 14, as he begins to, un to put before them the signs of the times. He says, for these things are coming. For these, these things, uh, wars and rumors of wars and oppression and apostasy and the preaching of the gospel throughout the world, throughout the, the nations. Those are the signs of the times of things that have been have began in his at the time of his first coming, will continue on until his second coming. In the last days is the period in which we live now. The times between the times started then and increase in fervor as we move through the timeline, you might say. What Jesus is saying here is that look, it was it's been true since then. And it's going to get a whole lot worse before it gets better. And then it's really going to get better. A whole lot better. Well, just in his saying that, hints that perhaps we have to come with these matters with a bit of humility, that and just a few things worth noting regarding 
things you ought to, we ought to keep in mind as we're moving through this passage this morning and in the weeks to come. There are three types of passages that you find in the New Testament when it comes to, actually the Old Testament as well, when you're studying, keeping in mind these, these categories, three types of passages. One is imminence passages. That is to say, it's coming any time now. Be ready. Imminence. Another, though, is interval. Not it's coming like really soon, but it's, it could be a long time, so get ready to wait. So you see the difference there? Eminence and interval. Oh, and here's a third category, ignorance. We don't know. And you see all three types of passages in the New Testament and actually in Matthew 24 and 25, all mixed in in this larger, well, that's worth knowing as you're sitting down and trying to wrestle through this, recognizing you're going to, there's a mix of things here that you've got to take into account. Another is time, different time periods that are in view. The already and the not yet. The already and the not yet. There's some things being spoken of here, I, we read them just a few moments ago, that have already been fulfilled. They're in the rear view mirror. It's history. It's already happened. That's the already. There are some other things in here, the not yet, yet to be fulfilled. They're coming in the future, and we don't know when. And we don't know exactly how. Oh, my goodness. You throw all that together. We've got to come to passages like this with a little bit of humility and be careful about how strongly we are willing to state certain things. I mean, the gospel in and of itself, rightly understood, demands humility, right? If you know you've been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, you ought to be the most humble person walking on the earth. Compounded with that, with the, the, then just the, the nature of passages like this, and we ought to then come to them with great humility. Well, that then, you know, might be a question that's coming to your mind now at this point. Well, can we be certain of anything? Can we be certain of anything when it comes to the second coming and Jesus' return and the, the culmination of the kingdom? Yes. Turn with me to Acts 1. Acts chapter 1, verse 11. Uh, the setting is Jesus' ascension into heaven. The disciples are standing there. These angels speak to them and listen to what they say. Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. I don't have time to unpack all that, but there's at least three things we can learn from there. His return is going to be personal. It's him, the same Jesus, visible, you're not going to miss it, and glorious. Personal, visible, and glorious. We can know that much. All that said still... Don't forget what we just said. The author of this story has told us how it's going to end. We need to pay careful attention to what he says, and that begins with approaching passages like this with humility. That's the first point. Second, moving right into that, the reality of these events. I mentioned the already and the not yet. This is where that comes into play, um, very much so. Jesus is speaking here in Matthew 24 of the historic fall and destruction of the city of Jerusalem and the temple. He's speaking very forcefully about that. They're in verses 15 through 20. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand and let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house and let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. 
And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. Um, this is the abomination of desolation spoken of, we read earlier from Daniel 9. And there were layers of fulfillment to that prophecy. The first layer came in the year 167 B.C. in the Maccabean area. I don't have time to get into all of that, but it was a crass, crass uh, desolation and, um, how would I say, just spiritual uh, defilement of the temple precincts uh, in that period. Well, that was, late, that was fulfillment level one. Level two came in the year 70 A.D., with the Roman army, the siege of the city, and the burning of the temple. It was a horrible, horrible time. That was an abomination, a terrible, destructive period, just horrific. A great tribulation is spoken of here as well, literally a mega tribulation, a time of oppression and affliction and distress, and that's why Jesus' counsel and command to his listeners is run. Don't wait around. Don't go back for the cloak and all that kind of stuff. Just go. Just go. Flavius Josephus is a first century Jewish historian. No other source other than the Bible gives us more relevant information for what things were like in those times. I'm going to read you an excerpt here from one of his works. It's called the, the Jewish War, in which he is recounting the terrible destruction of both the city and the temple. And I'm just going to tell you, I'm being very selective in the section that I picked to read because of some of the young ears in this room. So I dialed it down a bit. So and when you hear what I'm going to read, you're going to be like, dang, what did he leave out? While the temple was ablaze, the attackers plundered it, and countless people who were caught by them were slaughtered. There was no pity for age and no regard for accorded rank. Children and old men, laymen and priests alike, were butchered. Every class was pursued and crushed in the grip of war, whether they cried out for mercy or offered resistance. Through the roar of the flames, streaming far and wide, the groans of the falling victims were heard. Such was the height of the hill and the magnitude of the blazing pile that the entire city seemed to be ablaze. And the noise, nothing more deafening and frightening could be imagined. There were the war cries of the Roman legions as they swept onwards en masse, the yells of the rebels encircled by fire and sword, the panic of the people who, cut off above, fled into the arms of the enemy, and their shrieks as they met their fate. The cries on the hill blended with those of the multitudes in the city below, and now many people who were exhausted and tongue-tied as a result of hunger when they beheld the temple on fire found strength once more to lament and wail. Perea and the surrounding hills added their echoes to the deafening din, but more horrifying than the din were the sufferings. The temple mount, everywhere enveloped in flames, seemed to be boiling over from its base. Yet the blood seemed more abundant than the flames, and the number of the slain greater than those of the slayers. The soldiers climbed over heaps of bodies as they chased the fugitives. It's a horrible time. It was real. 
it was ultimately also but a foreshadowing of something much worse. Do you get that? A real event in space and time, and yet at the same time, is ultimately a foreshadowing of something far worse. And you hear that in Jesus' words as he's speaking of two horizons at the same time. And that's what makes it kind of puzzling. That's where we need to put our thinking caps on and really listen to what he's saying. Verses 21 and 22. For then, this is right after the, the, the flee, the run, the don't stop. For then there will be great tribulation such as not been from the beginning of the world until now, no and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Jesus is, is speaking here, um, again, of a, of, at the same time he has in mind something that's just coming in a few decades, something real that historians have written a lot about, traumatic, and yet is prefiguring. It, is a foreshad- it was a foreshadowing of something worse, of something yet to come. There's a term that, that uh, scholars, biblical scholars oftentimes use at this point. It's, it's called prophetic foreshortening. And Jesus is speaking in just that way at this point. It's when you're, you're speaking at the same time of a near event and a far event as though there's very little distance between them. It's the same thing that we experience when we're out in the mountains. And you look out over the vistas and the horizons and the ranges, and it looks like a near range is not that far away than the one, in the, you know, far, far away. It is actually far away, but it looks to our eyes not that far away. It's a foreshortening, an experience, of an optical illusion almost that we're experiencing that moment. Well, Jesus is not experiencing you know, optical illusion, but he has a perspective that causes him to speak in such a way of speaking of one thing that is coming in just a few decades and then of another thing that's coming in another age, such as the, the closer one is but a foreshortening, uh, a foreshadowing, excuse me, a foreshadowing and a type and a symbol of the other. But recognize this, in no way are we saying that one event is real and the other one is mythical and fanciful. That's not the point at all. Both horizons, both events are equally real. One has happened, one is coming. One has happened, one is is coming. The Bible, the Christianity... The Christian world and life view is more than history, but it is not less. You catch that? It is more than history, but it is not less. When you open up the pages of this book and these 66 books therein, there are people, real people, places, real places, events, real events. It's why genealogies have a point to them. And why not a bad tool in your Bible study is a map and an atlas. Because it's all real. There's a gritty earthiness to it. For instance, in verse 2, we read, But he answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. That is not metaphorical language. You can go to the old city of Jerusalem today and stand outside the walls of the old temple and touch the stones that were thrown down. 
those very stones on that very pavement you can walk up to, see, and touch. Jesus is not speaking metaphorically. He's speaking realistically and historically. And the people then were very wise to heed him. And we would be wise to do the same. We would be wise to do the same. Again, the author of the story has told us how it's going to end. We need to pay very careful attention to what it is he's, he's saying. Let's press on. The necessity to prepare. What's the point of all this? What's the point of all of this? Is it just to satisfy our idle curiosity? Is it to sell books and get people to come to your conference? Verses 23 to 28. Then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. There's a warning that Jesus gave to the people, and they heeded it. He said, false prophets are going to come. And this is exactly what happened in that period of time. They're roughly 33 AD and 70 AD. False prophets, false Christ coming saying, it's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. And it wasn't fine. And those who heeded Jesus' warnings, we have historical records of this, those who heeded Jesus' warnings and left Jerusalem, went up into the Judean mountains, went north up into the Jordan Valley, into the, the, the towns around Pella, were saved. They survived because they heeded his warnings. Well, he's giving us warnings here, too, in the prophetic foreshortening as he's looking, as he's seeing things yet to come. And he's saying to us, not just to them, but to us, be prepared. Not just to, to us, not just to them, but to us to be prepared. Now, of course, he doesn't give us exact dates. And anyone who tells you that otherwise is, well, they're trying to sell you something. He does not give us exact dates. He does not give us a, a timeline. He does not give us a, a chart. He gives us signs. He speaks of birth pangs. Now, birth pangs, what is that? We know what that is, some of us very existentially. It tells us of the certainty of something that is coming. It's the certainty of yet something that is coming. It, it, now, it may not tell you exactly when, just what? With a certainty and assurance of something, maybe even you could say cataclysmic, that is coming. Now, we know something about that from our everyday experience, just this time of year, right? You go out into the wild and you can see it if you just have open up your eyes. Deer and birds and bears are going into preparation mode right now because they sense in the, in the shortening of the days that fall is upon them, winter is coming, and so it means the necessity of gathering food and finding a mate and going off to hibernate or migrate or maybe some combination thereof. We don't learn from nature here. The necessity of, of, of preparation Jesus is calling us to be awake and alert, to be vigilant and ready, to be waiting and watchful. This is not the time to waste time making charts 
and making predictions and forecasts. This is not the time for that. That is not the emphasis of Jesus' words here in any way at all. In any way at all. So put your charts away. Winter's coming. If you have a fireplace and you need to start a fire, kindling. They are at best sensational and they are not helpful in the least. Jesus wants his people, his followers, his disciples to be faithful, not making forecasts, to be watchful and aware, to be ready. The author of the story, he could have told us if he wanted to, but he hasn't. He hasn't. Ours is to be watchful and to be ready. We need to stop. Let's end there. We'll be picking this up as a long study we're going to be in for the next few weeks in Matthew 24, 25. I hope this whetted your appetite, uh, if not hopefully too confusing. Um, let me pray for us. Father, you know our questions and you know our longings. You know our need. And part of our need is to be humble enough to acknowledge you as the author of our days, the one who knows the beginning from the end, because you've written the story. Some of us need humility there. Some of us need comfort there, because by all appearances, it doesn't look like anybody's written anything. It looks random and meaningless. We know in many things appearances can be deceiving and no less so here. So we ask for comfort and we ask for humility to bow before you and entrust our whole of ourselves to you as the author of our days and all days and the whole of the story. Amen. If I may ask our ushers to 